Well, Seven Mile Road, ideas have consequences. So here's what happens. There's an idea, and you think about it for long enough, and it, and it becomes a belief. It's something that you believe in, and that belief then starts to drive behaviors and decisions, and those behaviors and decisions have consequences. And I want to share with you two ideas this morning that have dramatically different consequences, okay? So here's the first idea. The first is, is wrapped up in this German phrase, Leben sunvertes Leben. It, it, it's, it's a phrase that means life unworthy of life. It was coined in 1920 by two German professors, Carl Binding and Alfred Hock. And they believed that people with congenital, mental, or developmental disabilities burdened humanity with contributing nothing. They would look at these individuals and say because of their impairments and their disabilities, they really burden humanity. They don't really contribute anything meaningful to society and therefore they're unworthy of life. In fact, uh, Professor Hawk described such people as empty shells of human beings. They believed some life was unworthy of life. And if you're a student of history... You know that that idea and the logical conclusion it leads to was the seed that grew into the horrific fruit of the Holocaust. You see, long before Auschwitz, long before the gas chambers, the Nazi regime began this program of euthanasia against children who were considered unworthy of life. Long before the world knew of the horrors of Nazism, there was this seed planted that some life was unworthy of life. And so it began with the killing of children. It progressed to the killing of adults with disabilities, then prisoners, and then finally the Jews. The final solution, as it was called. Mass genocide was simply the logical conclusion following the premise that some human lives are unworthy of life. See, if you believe that, that idea has consequences. One famous Auschwitz doctor, Fritz Klein, he gave oversight to the gas chambers. And he was asked how, as a doctor, did he reconcile his actions in the concentration camps with his ethical obligation as a physician to protect life? Klein famously stated, of course I am a doctor and I want to preserve life. And out of respect for human life, I would remove a gangrenous appendix from a diseased body. The Jew is the gangrenous appendix in the body of mankind. That's why I cut them out. Laban sunvertes Laban. Life unworthy of life. That's the first idea. Here's the second idea. It's the exact opposite. Life is worthy of life. On the one hand, you have life unworthy of life. On the other hand, you have this other idea. Life is worthy of life. Did anyone see the Toyota Super Bowl commercial this year? It featured Jessica Long, who is a decorated Paralympian swimmer. She's won 29 gold, 8 silver, and 4 bronze medals. She's in her early 20s. She's not done yet. And this commercial, I encourage you to look it up, is cinematically brilliant. 
And it's only outshined by its message. And what it is, it's, it's a reenactment of a conversation years ago that Mrs. Long, the mother of Jessica Long, had with the adoption agency as they found out that she and her husband were paired with a child. And the conversation went something like this. Imagine her on the phone. Mrs. Long, we found a baby girl for your adoption, but there are some things you need to know. She's in Siberia, and she was born with a rare condition. Her legs will need to be amputated. Now, I know this is difficult to hear. Her life, it won't be easy. And as the commercial progresses, it, it shifts to seeing Jessica Long win a race as her mother kind of watches from the kitchen table and Mrs. Respond, Mrs. Long responds to the agent. Well, it might not be easy, but it'll be amazing. I can't wait to meet her. And as the camera pans back and the commercial ends, there's a voiceover that adds, we believe there is hope and strength in all of us, which is just another way to say life is worthy of life. Now the commercial doesn't tell you this, but if you look into who the Longs are, you'll find out they are committed Christians and they are simply and beautifully following their faith to a logical conclusion. God makes life and therefore all life is worthy of life. We are faced today with two ideas and two vastly different consequences. On the one hand, that some life is unworthy of life or all life is worthy of life. This morning as we continue in our series and justice for all, we come to the topic of justice and the unborn. And we're talking about the injustice of abortion. Now, Instantly, when I say that word, abortion, it divides a room. And I know the word abortion carries with it a freight train of emotional and political and spiritual baggage. But it's precisely because of that, it's a topic that we cannot avoid. We have to enter in because the stakes of abortion are actually and literally a matter of life and death. Now, before we get into the sermon, before we go any further this morning, I want everyone, both the men and the women of this room, to look at me. It is statistically impossible in a room this size that this is a room unacquainted with the tragedy and the pain and the heartache of abortion. I promise you it's in this room. And I want you to know right at the beginning that abortion is not outside of the grace of God. It's not. There is no sin that is greater than the cross of Christ. Nothing. Nothing in your past. Abortion or anything is greater than the forgiveness and the grace of God. And I know that there's stigma. There is guilt. There is shame that paralyzes us when it comes to abortion. But I want you to know this morning that above all things, Seven Mile Road is a church for the broken. If we are known for nothing else, I want our church to know that this is a church for the broken. See, the church is not some camp for the righteous. 
and the, the do-gooders, the church is a hospital for the broken. And so this morning, we are going to look at what the scriptures say truly and clearly about abortion. There is truth of the matter that we have to speak to and we are going to speak about it directly. But on the other hand, it's a conversation that is going to be wrapped in and enveloped in the compassion and grace and mercy of God. Please know, this is a church that will walk with you no matter your struggle. But in particular today, if you are post-abortive, if abortion is in your past, maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you've coerced a partner into abortion. And you feel the weight and the guilt and the shame of it. Friends, no, there is hope and forgiveness and Jesus heals the post-abortive. I've seen it with my own eyes. So talk to someone. Doesn't have to be a pastor, but it can be. Maybe it's simply a friendly face you see in the congregation this morning. But you have to talk to someone for healing to begin. And as I mentioned in my email to the congregation, we are committed to walking with you, whatever steps that may be. So if it's talking with a pastor, if it's talking with a female minister, if you want to be set up with a biblical counselor, with professional help, we will set that up for you. We will pay for it. We will do whatever it takes so that you can find healing. That said, let me tell you where we're going this morning. Normally, we take one passage of scripture, we walk through books of the Bible, we dig into it, we try to glean principles that form and shape our life, and that is our normal diet of preaching, and that is one form of it. There's another kind of preaching that takes topics, and it looks at all the things that scripture has to say on that topic, and then it tries to draw conclusions from it that are derived from scripture. And that's the kind of sermon that we have this morning. I'm going to make two premises. I'm going to show you that the Bible makes two truth claims. What is a premise? A premise is a statement that an argument says will lead to a logical conclusion. And I'm going to show you that Scripture uh, teaches and upholds two premises about the unborn that leads to a logical conclusion. And so I don't want anyone to miss it this morning. Here are those premises. The first one is this. The unborn is worthy of life. If you're taking notes, write that down. The unborn is worthy of life. Scripture is emphatically clear that unborn humans have all the personhood, the rights, and dignities that all human beings have. The unborn is worthy of life. Here's the second premise. The unborn is worthy of protection. The unborn is worthy of protection. Scripture teaches that unborn humans deserve our protection because of their weaker, vulnerable stage of life. And finally, here's the conclusion. If both of those things are true, and I believe they are, there's a logical conclusion that comes from that. The unborn is worthy of our response. Because the unborn is worthy of life and protection, justice demands our Response. So let's start with the first premise to see that the unborn is worthy of life. Now let me say right at the start, there isn't a Bible verse that says straightforwardly humans inside the womb are human persons with all the rights and dignities that humans outside the womb have. That's not how scripture often works. You know why? 
Because in a Jewish and Christian worldview, it was simply understood that children are a blessing from God, that all life comes from God, and that a human inside the womb is as much as a human outside the womb. There's nothing magical that happens to a human before they're born to make them human and therefore a person. And when you understand something intuitively and implicitly, there's little need to state it explicitly. So instead of Bible verses that make those explicit claims, what you have are Bible verses that speak of the unborn humans as persons. Let me give you one example that we read earlier from Psalm 139. David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. David is writing a psalm the whole psalm in, in total is, is about how intimately God knows him. And because God, and because God knows him and loves him, David's going to end this prayer asking God to reveal to him any areas of sin in his life that need to be put to death so that he can walk on the path that leads to everlasting life. And right here in the middle of this psalm, David speaks to God's knowledge of him even in the womb. He says it was the Lord who created him in his mother's womb. And he uses this imagery of knitting. Shout out to all my knitters in the, womb, in the room. I know where you are. I see you. I'm not a knitter, but what I can tell is that knitting is this hands-on activity that takes this unformed ball of yarn and creates something beautiful and valuable. What David is saying is he's saying, God, you did that in my mother's womb. You took my unformed substance and you made something beautiful and valuable. In fact, he goes on to say, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That, that phrase, those two words, unformed substance, is one Hebrew word, golem, and it's basically our word, embryo. It's a human in its earliest form. And so David says, when I was just a golem, a zygote, an embryo, a tiny clump of cells. Not only did your eyes see me, but listen to this. In your book were written the days of my life, even before I was born. Did you catch that? Before he was born, when he was at the tiniest stage of human development, David said, I had a story written in God's history book. Probably even before my mother knew I was pregnant, I had a story. Everything about these verses, from all the personal pronouns used to speak about David, to the wonderfulness of the creation of humanity, to the intimacy and intricacy of God's involvement, to the reality that embryos have a story written in God's history book. All of it speaks to the reality that unborn humans are not merely biologically human, that they are personally human. What's my point? 
See, nobody legitimately denies that, unborn, that an unborn human baby is biologically human. Everybody knows that that's what's in there. No one's confused that what's inside the womb is something other than human. Everyone knows that when a male sperm fertilizes a female egg, that what results is biologically human. It's got human DNA. It's got human genes. No one thinks it's something other than human. But the question in this debate is, is this human a person? Are they a person? Do they have the rights and dignities that all human beings have? Is this human deserving of the same rights and privileges and dignities that humans have outside the womb? And to answer this question, people sometimes ask, well, it's important to know, well, when does life begin? At what point is that human embryo technically considered life? So is a, is a human alive at the moment of conception? Is it two weeks? Is it six weeks? Is it when the baby has a heartbeat? And the answer is yes. Life begins at the moment of conception. From the moment of conception, development begins. Multiplication begins. Life begins. Have you ever looked at human embryonic development? It's fascinating. If you look at the earliest stages of human development, you'll be stirred to worship the Lord because within the first 12 weeks of life, you're going to find that a baby has a heartbeat. It has a, he or she has its own unique blood. There are now discernible brain waves. There are hands, feet, lips, noses, hundreds of muscles. Did you know that this baby has a fingerprint? It's already sucking its thumb and yawning. She's responsive to light and already making complex facial expressions. As marvelous as human development is, and I do believe that life begins at the moment of conception, I think the question of when does life begin is the wrong question to ask in, term, in terms of personhood. Because you see, the question of personhood is not a question that can be answered biologically or even scientifically. And listen, I'm not hating on science. I love science. But what I don't like is when science is, is claimed as something that can answer every single question in the world. Can science tell you when Abraham Lincoln was born? No. You know why? That is not an observable, repeatable event. If you want to know about that, you have to look at history. It's a different discipline that answers different questions. Science does not answer every single question. The question of personhood is not a question that science answers. The question of personhood is a philosophical and religious question. That's the question we're asking. See, science can tell you what a substance is, but science does not answer the question of value. And that's the question of personhood. Value, dignity, and worth are assigned and they're attributed. These are questions of philosophy. So let me give you an example. You can take an object and science can tell you if that object is copper, if it's silver, or gold. Science can look at the, the materials and say, this is what this substance is. But you know what science can't tell you? How much it's worth. Science does not answer questions of worth. That's beyond science. Philosophy in our society gives a value to copper, silver, and gold. And it's the same with humanity. Science can tell you 
if an animal is a human or an elephant, but it cannot tell you the worth and value and dignity. So what makes a human a person? When does a human become a person and who or what determines a person's value, dignity, and worth? Well, the Bible's clear. Let's go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, at the height of God's creation is humanity. Humans and humans alone are created after the likeness of God and are made in his image. So here's what that means. Every single human being is an image bearer of God. At our core, what does it mean to be a human? It means to be an image bearer bearer of God and with that inherently beautifully every single human is endowed with dignity worth and value worth and value are not attached to biological and merely chemical combustions of accidental existence friends if there is no God there is no value except what we arbitrarily give to things Christianity alone provides the basis for the belief that all humans are inherently valuable. God has stamped humanity with his image. And when he did that, it was God's divine declaration that every single human life is sacred and precious. From the moment of conception to our very last breath, regardless of our situation or status. So here's the reality that we face. Someone determines if an unborn human is worthy of life. Someone does. Someone determines if an unborn human is valuable. It's either God or us. It's either humanity or God who gets to decide the value of human life. And the Bible is crystal clear on this. The Bible declares that it's God and God alone who determines the value of a human life see the christian believes that humans are intrinsically valuable because of who we are not what we do see the person in favor of abortion has to determine value based on something else right we all are making value assessments and it has if god doesn't determine our value then then by what criteria do we determine the value of a human life So if societies get to determine the value of a human life, then what criteria is that determination made? I don't know if you are uh, reading right now in the, in the, the conversation going on in contemporary ethics. But right now, this is happening in our uh, universities and it's happening in intellectual journals right now. I'm not making this up. The ruling tendency is to recognize that there are in fact such things as persons which means humans with value and rights, but a person is defined by their functions or capacities by what they can do, not by what they are. So right now the conversation is going, listen, humans are valuable. They do have dignity and we make that assessment by what they can do, the functions they perform, not what they inherently are. So for example, 
And these are pulled right out of philosophy textbooks being written right now. That a person is a, a human is a person if they're able to reason. If they're able to exhibit self-motivated act activity. A human is a person if they have the capacity to communicate about many topics with a conceptual self-awareness. If you can do all those things, congratulations, you're a person. And if you can do those things, you're a person. And therefore, you are owed all the rights and dignities therein. But if you can't, you are not a person. Then with this definition of personhood, the logic and justification of abortion is laid. Since unborn humans cannot perform these functions. Because unborn humans can't reason or exhibit self-motivated activity because they don't have conceptual self-awareness, then that human is not a person. And since that human is not a person, then it has no inherent claim to life. Now, it doesn't take a PhD to see that by this definition, not only are unborn humans not persons, but a great many number of people are also not qualified for personhood. So by that definition, people with mental and certain physical disabilities, the unconscious, people with addictions, persons suffering from Alzheimer's, and the list goes on, might be considered humans who are not meeting the qualifications for personhood. There's a Christian philosopher named Jay Buchevsky. With a name like that, you have to be a philosopher. Buchevsky writes this, the cure for such blindness, and he's talking about contemporary secular ethics and their whole messed up grid for personhood. He says the cure for such blindness is not to tinker with the list of functions by which we define persons, but to stop confusing what persons are with what they can typically do. See, a person is not a person because of what they can do. A person is a person because of what they are. Humans in the womb are scientifically and biologically human. And because of that, they're made in the image of God. And because of that, they are persons. Every single human is a person. You know, when I was writing that that statement this, this week, every human is a person, it seemed silly to write it. I looked at it on the screen of my computer and I said, did I just write every human is a person? Are our consciences so seared that I have to write that statement? And the answer is yes. The consciences of our society are so seared that we deny the personhood of humanity. And it seems silly to have to say it out loud. It seems silly to have to state the obvious. But sometimes the most obvious things are the most overlooked. I think we like to get into all the complications of of science and this and that so that we can obscure the simple, obvious reality. Humans are persons. You've never met a non-person human. There's no such thing as a human who's not a person. Do you know what happens when you detach personhood from humanity? You begin to dehumanize them. And we all know the pathway that 
leads to. It is the pathway that leads to mass genocide. It is the pathway that leads to racism. It is the pathway that leads to genocide. It was the pathway that led to the Holocaust. It's the exact same logic. So here's our first premise. In God's economy, there's no such thing as life unworthy of life. Unborn humans, every single one of them are made in the image of God, which means they are persons and as such, they're worthy of life. Every life is worthy of life. Premise one, here's premise two. The unborn is worthy of protection. We're gonna look at Exodus 21. In this section of Exodus, the Lord is giving the Israelites the beginning of a system of laws to help govern them as they establish themselves as a nation. And in this, uh, this section of laws, you see God recognizing the personhood of a child in the womb and justice demanded for the harming of this child. Look at this law. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So what's the Lord communicating in this law? This law recognizes that an unborn human has a right to life. It is so clear. And second... A violation of that right demands justice. Did you see that? Unborn humans have a right to life. They have a right to be unharmed. But if they're harmed in the womb, guess what? Justice demands a response. If a pregnant woman is struck such that it causes premature birth, then that child's right to life has been threatened and justice needs to be served. And so it, it articulates two pathways. The first is if the child's born and it's assessed to be without harm, then just a fine is imposed. However, if the child is harmed, then retributive justice is demanded in keeping with the harm. And don't miss this. If that child dies, justice demands life for life. Old Testament scholar Gleason Archer writes this. There's no ambiguity here, whatever. What is required is that if there should be an injury either to the mother or to her children, the injury shall be avenged by a like injury to the assailant. If it involves the life of a premature baby, then the assailant shall pay for it with his life. Listen to this. There is no second class status attached to the fetus under this rule. He is avenged just as if he were a normally delivered child or an older person, life for life. Now this is remarkable when you consider when this is written in the ancient world because in the ancient world, unborn children or newly born children had no protections under the law, none. Listen to historian Tom Holland describe the ancient world as it relates to infanticide. Infanticide means the killing of infants. Lepers and slaves were not the most defenseless of God's children. Across the Roman world, wailing at the sides of roads or on rubbish tips. He's British, that just means a trash heap, okay? Rubbish tips. Babies abandoned by their children were a common sight. You know what he's saying there? 
He's saying if you and I lived in the ancient Roman world and we were walking or traveling along the road, you would hear the cries of abandoned children left to die. Others might be dropped down drains there to perish in the hundreds. The odd eccentric philosopher aside, besides them, few had ever questioned this practice. Indeed, there were cities who by ancient law made a positive virtue of it, condemning to death deformed infants for the good of the state. He goes on to say, Sparta, one of the most celebrated cities in ancient Greece, had been the epitome of this policy. Aristotle, the great philosopher himself, had lent the full weight of his prestige to it. Girls in particular were liable to being winnowed ruthlessly. Only a few people the odd German tribe and inevitably the Jews had stood aloof from the exposure of unwanted children. Pretty much everyone else had always taken it for granted until that was the emergence of a Christian people. What is he saying? He's saying in the ancient world, children were thrown away like garbage. Like garbage. Now before we say how could they take an infant How could they do that? How could they possibly dispose of an infant as if it were garbage just based on perceived birth defects or uh, sex preference or some other arbitrary criteria? Let's remember, that's exactly what our society does today in abortion clinics. It's the exact same thing. The only difference here is Spartans didn't have genetic screening or ultrasound machines. They just couldn't tell before a child was born if it had any birth defects. So they had to wait until the baby was born in order to see if a child met their expectations. Our society does the exact same thing, except we don't have to wait to hear the children cry as we abandon it. We kill children in the womb, and instead of calling it murder, we call it reproductive rights. Worse yet, we call it health care. Now, just to be clear, what do I mean by abortion? Because I think we can get, the conversation get complicated, but here's a simple, straightforward definition. Abortion is the willful killing of an innocent, unborn human life. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973 made abortion legal in all 50 states, do you know there have been over 62 million abortions. Just let that sink in. 62 million abortions. That's one every 37 seconds. Every 37 seconds, a child is murdered in the womb. You know what people always want to say? Well, what about rape and incest? Well, did you know? Less than 2%, and 2% is being generous, less than 2% of abortions are done because of rape or incest, which means the vast majority of abortions, over 98% occur simply because, for whatever reason, we don't value the life of the child. In Sparta, it was a society who highly valued military strength above all else, So any child that couldn't either produce 
a Spartan warrior or who themselves couldn't become a Spartan warrior was simply discarded. If they didn't meet expectations, they were thrown away. That was their grid for determining value. In America, our grid is comfort, convenience, and above all else, the autonomy of personal choice. Now hear me. I'm not saying that there aren't complicated situations. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying there aren't morally complex situations that you might find yourself in. I'm not saying there aren't hard realities being faced by real people. But what I'm saying is when all of the moral calculus is tallied, we simply value choice over life. When it's all said and done, we value choice over life. Now think of the subjectivity of humanity in determining the value and protection of human life. Here's how the moral calculus goes. An unborn human life is valuable and worthy of protection if I want it. If I want the child, then that child is now given the status of personhood and value. In fact, if, 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 a, if a person murders a pregnant woman who wanted the baby, guess what? That person is charged with two counts of murder, right? The life in the womb is now a person with all the rights and dignities therein. But if the mother decides she doesn't want the child, then it can be freely aborted. See, if I want the baby, it's a human person with a future and it's incredibly valuable to me. But if I don't want the baby, it's not a person. It's not valuable and it's able to be killed. killed. And if you think I am overly simplifying the argument, I promise you I'm not. Just listen to this disturbing yet intellectually honest article over at salon.com. This woman explains perfectly the simple and yet murderous logic of choice. Listen to her explain why the value of self-autonomy should trump the value of unborn human life. It's the longest quote I've ever quoted in a sermon, but I didn't want to leave a single word out. I am not making up their position. I am letting you hear their position for yourselves and what is probably the most straightforward and clear expression of it that I can find. This is what she said. Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about. Lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what's right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. When we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. See, I have friends who've referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells. And then a few years later, we're exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. 
I know women who've been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies was vastly different, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same. Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. And when we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion, second trimester versus late term, dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. Are you only human when you're born? Only when you're viable outside the womb? Are you less of a human life when you look like a tadpole than when you can suck on your thumb? Abortion saves lives, not just in the most medically literal way, but in the roads that women who have choice then get to go down and the possibilities for them and for their families. Don't miss this. And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge with my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. You think our society has evolved? You think we're above child sacrifice? That's exactly what she's articulating. The logic of abortion says, my body, my choice. I'm not ready to be a parent. Don't you know, I have all these plans. And this unplanned pregnancy disrupts those plans. It doesn't matter that the life inside my womb is precious and valuable. Because ultimately, that human life is not more precious and valuable than my plans and my choice. Therefore, abortion is justified. That's the logic. The logic of the Bible is just the opposite. God is in charge, not me. He gives life, not me. He determines value, not me. The Bible teaches that it is categorically wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, period, full stop. And abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being Therefore, abortion is morally wrong. The Bible tells us repeatedly that we need to protect the most vulnerable, needy, and voiceless in our society. Here's one example from Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This sermon's already long, so I don't have time to give you all the other passages that speak about it. But this is one of many verses in the Bible with a clear and direct call to speak for those who cannot speak. To defend the rights of the destitute and the needy. Tell me, who is more vulnerable and needy and speechless than an unborn human child? Friends, this is not a partisan sermon. Nothing I've said is political. It's a moral issue on which the Bible is clear. Unborn humans are worthy of life and protection. So that brings us to our logical conclusion. 
Because unborn humans are worthy of life and protection, they're worthy of our response. Look at Proverbs 24. The writer says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not the one who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Those who are being taken away to death and stumbling to the slaughter are facing serious injustice and suffering. And the writer of Proverbs is giving a bold call, an exhortation to rescue those who are headed to the slaughter. And the writer says this, don't miss it. If you try to say, we didn't know. If you try to have an ignorant eye, recognize this. God knows your heart. You may be able to fool your neighbor. You may be able to even fool yourself, but you cannot fool God because he knows the heart. You may say with your lips that you did not know that this was going on, but God knows if you're truly ignorant of the issue or not. And friends, none of us in this room have that excuse. We know the plight of the unborn. It's in the news every single day. We aren't unaware of the situation. We may have become callous to the issue. Our consciences have maybe become seared. But no one in this room can claim ignorance. We all know what's going on. And the last sobering line of this proverb says that God will hold us accountable for our action or our silence. So how do we respond? I've got four things quickly for you. The first one is this, prayer. Prayer. The battle line of life and death is first and foremost a spiritual one. Above all things, the matter of life and death is not a political or legislative reality. It is a spiritual one. Our enemy has blinded the eyes and seared the consciences of millions of Americans to believe that some life is not equal, that some life is not deserving of protection, that some life is unworthy of life. And God has ordained the prayer of his people to be one of the most powerful influences in the world to bring about his change. Let's continually ask him to do what only he can do. And not only that, when we are regularly committed to praying for things, what you'll find is that prayer not only changes the world, but it changes you because it'll help you stay committed and tender to the cause of the unborn. So number one is pray. Number two, learn. You need to saturate yourselves in the scripture to see God's heart for humanity, especially for his children. If you find yourself this morning cold and callous to the plight of the unborn, I would like to, to, to suggest that perhaps you have not saturated yourself in the scriptures enough to see that God loves and cares for children. I think of passages like Exodus 1 where Pharaoh gave a state-sanctioned order for the systematic killing of all Hebrew boys. And in chapter 1 of Exodus, long before we get to Moses, there are two brave Hebrew women, two brave Hebrew midwives who stood up to the king and saved the children. Read that passage. Think about uh, God's care and concern. Reflect on Genesis 1 and 2 until you believe in the core of your bones that every single human life is made in the image of God. 
Reflect on Psalm 139 from today's sermon, looking at the personality and the story of unborn human life. I think of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah where the Lord exhorts his people, brings down, charges upon his very people because why? They've neglected the weakest and the most vulnerable in their society. Secondly, in addition to scripture, read good books that can help awaken us to the reality and tragedy of abortion. I've got three on the screen. Deliver Us from Abortion by Brian Fisher. The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf, who also, by the way, has some excellent articles on desiring God if a whole book seems intimidating to you. There's a book by R.C. Sproul and Greg Bailey called Abortion, A Rational Look at an Emotional Issue. All of these will help you understand the plight of the unborn and what we can do to end it in our society. And finally, number three, engage. Now, there are several ways you can be involved in tangible ways. The first one is this you can write and call local and federal legislatures. You see, laws that protect the unborn actually protect the unborn. Situations and circumstances involved. When people are making uh, decisions are often complex. That said, laws that protect the unborn do in fact protect the unborn. I'm not saying that legislation is the only way. I'm not saying that um, helping uh, people rising out of poverty wouldn't help as well. I'm saying it's a complicated issue. But when there are laws on our books that protect the unborn, guess what happens? The unborn are protected. We wouldn't get rid of laws against murder or laws against rape or laws against domestic violence just because it continues to happen, right? Those laws actually protect people. We should be for laws that protect the unborn. And our legislators need to know that we care about protecting the unborn so that they're motivated to represent their constituents. You can check out websites like masscitizensforlife.org slash getinvolved. This website has information on different abortion legislation. It'll tell you who your legislators are so that you can write them and call them. Also check out the AND campaign and their Whole Life Project. From their website, this is what the Whole Life Project is about. The Whole Life Project recognizes the importance in protecting the life of the unborn child while at the same time valuing the life of the mother by addressing issues like maternal mortality, poverty, wages, and expanding access to health care and affordable, high-quality child care. The pro-choice movement wants to make you think that you can only choose one and value the life of the mother or the life of the child, but friends, that is a false dichotomy. We can support both. Second thing you can do to get involved is support your local crisis pregnancy center. Local price, uh, crisis pregnancy centers do not receive tax dollars like Planned Parenthood does. And they help counsel men and women to choose life and let them know of all their different options. And they need our prayers, they need our encouragement, they need our financial support, and they need our volunteer hours. A great one to check out right here locally is the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices. Look them up. They need our help. Number three, you can get involved with foster care and adoption. When a courageous woman does give birth to a child who is in danger of being aborted, she and the child need support through foster care and adoption. This is not a mandate. I'm not saying every single family has to become an adoption or foster uh, family. 
But what this is, is a call to prayerfully consider if God is calling you to this ministry. We have to at least ask if God is calling us to this ministry. And if you are not called directly, then ask how can you support families who are called to this ministry. Never underestimate the power of providing a meal for a family who's welcoming a new child into their home. To say, we love you, we see you, and we're with you. You can check out websites like bethany.org or mass.gov slash foster care. They both have helpful resources on foster care and adoption. Last, you can minister to women who've had abortions. Now in this sermon, I hope I've been crystal clear on our need as a church to champion the sanctity of human life. And like I said at the very beginning, I want to end the same way. Our church is a place where it's okay to not be okay. Abortion is not an unforgivable sin. And I've talked with many post-abortive women who carry paralyzing guilt and shame. We must be a church where the post-abortive can find healing. We have to be. Post-abortive families need our, our, our tenderness and they need our care. And if that's you, please talk to someone. Do not carry that burden alone. Did you know that Jesus canceled our record of debt by nailing it to the cross? Every sin, abortion included, was put on a record. And when Christ went to the cross, that record of sin was nailed to the cross and it's remembered no more. Friends, may the Lord give us courage of conviction to speak truly, directly, that all life is worthy of life. And may God give us the wisdom to know how to engage to protect the lives of the unborn. Let's pray.